a Harvard acceptance letter. Each year, around 2,000 students around the world click open their Harvard admissions portal to find confetti and congratulations streaking across the screen. Tens of thousands more don't, and don't really know why. This week, Harvard Crimson reporters join us to talk about their conversations with newly admitted students and Harvard's Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid, William R. Fitzsimmons, Class of 1967. Together, we'll dive deep into what the process is, what the admissions office is paying attention to, and where it's all going. From Plimpton Street, this is News Talk. I'm Frank So. Uh, my name is Michelle Ann Amponsa, and I'm an admissions and financial aid reporter for The Crimson. My name is Emma H. Heider, and I'm also covering admissions and financial aid for The Crimson. Thank you so much, Emma and Michelle. Welcome to the show. So tell us a bit about what we're doing on this segment. What did you learn from diving deep into this process? Yeah, so Emma and I actually talked to um, a number of students who were admitted to the class of 2027, um, early and regular decision. We also had one student who actually knew since her junior year of high school that she was going to Harvard. Um, She was recruited for sport. And we had a very nice geographical mix of students as well. Yeah, definitely. And just also taking like an inside look at the statistics, we also had a conversation with the Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid, Bill Fitzsimmons. We asked him a bunch of questions about the statistics, about the data. We definitely compared like this year's data in terms of like the changes in demographics, the number of students from different countries, like that kind of thing to last year's data. And it kind of reveals some interesting trends as well. For sure. So could you walk us through some of those trends? What are we seeing this year? One thing that we noticed and that a lot of, I guess, other news outlets have been noticing is that um, the, the number of Asian American applicants is at 29.9%, and that's an increase of 2.1% from last year's rate of 27.8. And that's also been a trend for the last few years of noticing, like, even from the 27.8, that was an increase from the year before and an increase from the year before. So I think it was interesting to look at that. And we actually asked um, Dean Fitzsimmons about that. And he told us basically that it wasn't a surprise and that it's been kind of part of a longer term trend. But there's obviously the like upcoming SFFA v. Harvard Supreme Court case where Harvard's admissions practices are being kind of scrutinized in closer depth. Another interesting one was just seeing the largest intended field of study was social sciences, um, which I believe is part of a larger trend, um, followed closely by biological sciences, humanities, and that was really reflected in the students that we spoke to. Um, A large number of them were interested in pursuing government, econ, and concentrations like that as well. And then one thing we asked for in our interview was the top represented countries kind of outside the U.S. And that was a question that Dean Fitzsimmons, he was like, I love that question. And he like ran out of the room to get someone to get that data for him. And he came back with like, uh, like a couple pieces of paper. Yeah. What we realized when like kind of like examining the statistics is a lot of the numbers that go behind it are a lot more complicated than you initially think. When we asked like, oh, what are the top represented countries? Like behind the U.S., the countries with the highest number of permanent residents was Canada with 44 mm-hmm. students, the United Kingdom with 24, and China with 16. And then behind that's like Australia, Italy, Germany, Turkey, India, and then the 10th most was Ukraine. I mean, some really, really interesting trends. I'm curious, you know, especially in in conversation with Dean Fitzsimmons, are there things that are standing out to him, things that are surprising to him, trends that he's watching out for moving forward? 
I think a big one that came up was the admissions rate because this admissions rate is the second lowest in the college's history. Um, and an interesting thing that he told us was that he and other like higher education admissions experts are expecting admissions rates to really stabilize in the coming years. With like COVID-19, we saw that the admissions rate like really plummeted as um, a higher number of applicants were applying to the college because of test optional policies and things like that. But going forward, they're expecting maybe not a return to like pre-COVID-19 admissions rates, but just seeing a stabilization. And I think also the admissions office really takes a long-term view in terms of the demographics and the stats because like he was even telling us about like based on like the number of people being born each year that also in terms of like what what it will look like in 2026 when people are applying or 2032 that that really impacts the number of people applying as well. And right now um, the admissions office has kept test optional admissions in place until the class of 2030 so um, that should also kind of create a stabilization as this is, you know, continuing for the next four years. Mm. I was just pulled off the street today as I was walking by Harvard Bookstore. Somebody whose first question to me was, are you a student here? After a yes, she said, what was your SAT score? And that's one of the biggest questions that I tend to get from either tourists or visitors to campus. I'm curious what the role of test scores in admissions is and, and what it might become. Yeah, that's a really good question. With test optional policy, I think we're seeing that admissions committees are taking a different approach to test scores. Um, something that Dean Fitzsimmons really emphasized in our interview with him was that Harvard uses a holistic admissions process. So they look at the entire person. Um, he said that they're looking at your essays, they're looking at your letters of recommendation, they're looking at you know your background, the kinds of things that you've had to overcome. So test scores are really becoming just one part of the application process and not the determining factor of whether or not you get into a university. A really important part of this story, it's not just about getting in, but about paying for it. Tell us the story behind Harvard's financial aid offerings. So if you make below $85,000 a year, your family, um, beginning with the class of 2027, that is the threshold for zero-cost attendance. Mm -hmm. um, so it's free. And you also receive a $2,000 stipend um, for books, um, moving costs, and any other costs that are associated with the transition to college. And that $85,000 threshold is a $10,000 increase from last year's threshold of $75,000. Um, and when we talked to Dean Fitzsimmons about that, he called um, the changes in financial aid revolutionary. He basically told us like, when you look at inflation and other things that they really want to make sure that there's no financial barrier for anyone who gets in. And I know he also talked about how he, when he was a Harvard student, that he was on financial aid and that that was a big part of like why he was able to come here. And another part of this cost of attendance rose by 3.5% to a total of $79,450. And that's for uh, the 2023-2024 school year. Mm -hmm. And so we were looking at some of the past tuition increases. And what we've noticed is basically a trend of Harvard typically increases tuition by 3, 3.5, like sometimes 4% each year. So that wasn't really a surprise. It's mm -hmm. kind of just a normal increase that they also announced with the financial aid expansion. For sure. I'm wondering if you noticed any impressions or trends from the students that you talked to. You mentioned some interests were well represented. What else did you notice? 
I think an interest in advocacy was a huge thing that we noticed among the students that we talked to who we just really reached out to on Instagram, TikTok, and other platforms like that. For example, Claire Yu, one of the students that I interviewed, serves on the Young Democrats executive board in Idaho, um, where she lives. Um, Another student I talked to was um, really interested in advocacy as well in the Latin community that he's from in Houston, Texas, um, combined with like interests in government. So it was really interesting to see that a lot of these students are really influential people in their community, um, change makers, um, volunteers. I think Ivy Day has become a big thing on TikTok. Like you hear the inspirational music, you see like hundreds of thousands of views. One of the people I talked to, he had taken a gap year and then applied and he spent the year like interning with his local public health department on drug addiction recovery policy. He told me like the reason he wanted to take that gap year, even though there were other people in his life, like teachers who were a little bit worried that he wouldn't make it to college if he took the gap year, was that like he really wanted to spend the time like making that difference before college and he didn't know if he'd get the chance while he was in college to like fully devote time to that. I'm curious what the feelings that they expressed were. How are they feeling about the acceptance? Everyone was crying. Everyone jumped out of their seats. One of the students I spoke to, Olivia, um, who's from Wisconsin, um, the night before restrictive early action admissions uh, results came out, she actually had a dream that she was um, deferred or rejected because she had heard that like the deference rate was really high. So the whole day she said that she had like a gut feeling that she just wasn't going to get in. She was going to get deferred. And when she sat down to open her decision, the confetti came on the screen. She got in. Um, and she was like crying, like she couldn't speak. And her mom saw her, like the tears in her face. And she was like, oh, you got rejected, didn't you? <laughs> and she was actually no, like, no, I got in, mom. Thank you so much, Michelle and Emma, for, for joining us today and for chatting about this admission cycle. We can't wait to hear more. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Up next... A court case that gets at the heart of Harvard's reckoning with its legacy of slavery, set for a hearing by the Middlesex Superior Court on April 13th. Hi, my name is Jasmine Palma. I'm the class of 2026, and I cover culture institutions and administration. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the story behind this case. How did the lawsuit first come about? Right, so there's this woman from Connecticut named Tamara Lanier, and she was pursuing genealogical research to document her family's history. She came across these daguerreotypes, which are these primitive forms of photography, and she she says and she alleges that they are images of her enslaved ancestors, namely her great-great-great-grandfather, Papa Renti, and his daughter, Delia. So getting more into the story itself, Lanier, her mother was a teacher and she had this oral tradition of telling and recounting stories of of their ancestors. Papa Renti himself was an enslaved man who taught himself how to read and taught others how to read. So he was held in high regard by his family, highly revered for continuing this kind of educator image that was this persistent, constant narrative that Lanier had gotten throughout her entire life. So once her mother had passed, she inherited the mission per se of documenting the family history and investigating further uh, who Papa Renti was and how they were connected to him. 
once her mother had passed, she went to this ice cream shop where she would usually um, get a salad from work. And she came across a cashier who happened to be knowledgeable about genealogy and offered his support in helping her uh, find anything on Papa Renti. She passes along all the information that she had and a few weeks pass, she comes back to the ice cream shop and the cashier says to her, where have you been? I found your Papa Renti. The cashier, um, the old man, sent her an email where he included all of the information that he had found and one of the attachments as uh, Liner opened the attachments she saw an image of Papa Renti in the form of the daguerreotypes and it's it's now found that these daguerreotypes are one of the oldest images of enslaved people and she just uh, in her conversations with her she recounted how rattled she felt by the whole situation she had grown up with this image of Papa Renti being an educator, but here he was degraded to a research subject. The images were commissioned by Louis Agassiz, whose central area of research is in a strain of uh, racist pseudoscience called polygenism, which alleges that certain individuals are have inferiority or, or superiority over others on the basis of race or genetics. And after she had discovered this, she reached out to Harvard in response to say, hey, I am the descendant of Papa Renti. And she tried to engage in dialogue to discuss her relation to it. And Harvard for a long time now, where Harvard started this movement to try to explore its connections to slavery and found that slavery has quote unquote powerfully shaped Harvard's um, reputation and settled it as an establishment an institution and so once Lanier connected with Harvard she reached out and said hey I'm actually one of the descendants of this man that you have in one of your images that is under your possession and then after trying to maintain a line of communication Lanier ultimately ended up filing an emotional distressed lawsuit in 2019 and it was that it was mainly on the emotional damages that she incurred from Harvard's use of the daguerreotypes on a 2017 book cover and in promotional material for a 2014 conference which they had done without notifying Lanier even though she had already communicated with them that through her genealogical research she had found to be a descendant that is the lawsuit's backstory Thank you so much for cueing us into that story. So we know right now that Lanier is alleging emotional distress due to Harvard's use of the daguerreotypes of Papa Renti. I'm curious if you could tell us sort of what specifically she's saying and if, you know, Harvard has said anything in response. Um, the emotional distress lawsuit originated because after Langer's persistent attempts to communicate with Harvard, uh, she says that they had repeatedly neglected it, she alleges. So the emotional distress lawsuit is mainly for her to seek some form of relief for the injuries that she sustained by the images being used in both the 2014 conference and the 2017 book. Because keep in mind that to discover Harvard's long history of racism and scientists engaging in abusive research, she contends that that should warrant some open line of communication between her and Harvard, but she feels that that didn't really occur. Thank you so much. So this April 13th hearing, could you tell us a little bit about where the lawsuit is at? 
today. And how did we get to this point in the case? The lawsuit was first dismissed by the Middlesex uh, County Superior Court in March of 2021. So they sought to appeal the lower court's decision. And the Massachusetts Supreme Court ruled in 2022, so last year in June, that Lanyard did have grounds to sue Harvard for emotional distress, which overturned the lower court's decision. Harvard's response to this um, was another motion to um, dismiss Lanyard's emotional distress claim. They argued that Lanyard was just um, putting forward the same type of um, claim that she made in the previous one, which were already dismissed, so there was really no premise for her to be submitting another motion. So in response to Harvard, uh, Lanyard then filed a 153-page uh, response um, in January, a month later, after Harvard's memorandum was released, and then the university replied to yet another reply in February. And so it's been like this constant back and forth motion, but April 13th, she gets to discuss in front of the Middlesex County Superior Court, her side of things up in the open. What should we keep in mind looking at the April 13th hearing? Well, I think that this case is particularly interesting because this actually fits into a broader conversation and uh, Lanier herself has been advocating through legislation for certain protections to be made when it comes to cultural or historical objects that belong to certain affected groups so that if you have cultural repositories or certain collections by institutions, whether that be museums, universities, what have you, that certain individuals can lay claim to them and have protected language to ensure that there can be ethical stewardship of such materials. Whatever the court decides, I will definitely further the discourse on the very fraught histories of past conduct that comes with having such old institutions and what it means for them to progress into the modern era where you can have claims such as this unfold and how to respectfully interact with the group that are making these claims. News Talk is hosted by Frank S. Zoe. This episode of News Talk was produced by Gina H. Cho and Frank S. Zoe, with help from Margot A. Silliman. Our multimedia chairs are Joey Huang and Julian J. Giordano. Our managing editor is Brandon L. Kingdollar. Music in this episode comes from freesound.org. From 14 Plimpton Street, this is News Talk.